Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Reske. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Gospel Attic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Bryan. I'm joined with my co-host, Jim Reske. And we also have a special guest with us, a good friend, Randy Nickel. Guys, it's really good to be together. I'm excited to look at the book of 1 Thessalonians. We might even dip our toes into 2 Thessalonians, one of Paul's first letters that he that he wrote. It's uh, really uh short letter but it's really powerful it's got some strong themes in it so we want to um uh well i guess before we dive in randy how are you doing man how's life uh doing well greg thanks for asking thanks for having me back on um things are going well my uh just dropped my daughter off at college so i'm uh for the first time in 35 years um uh, an empty nester, which is kind of wild. So, but uh, yeah, so we're, we're doing well. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. I can imagine uh, the house is probably very quiet. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. It's very quiet. And uh, it was weird. The other night I was going to bed and I realized I could lock the door and turn off the lights that no one was coming home. So yeah, anyways. Well, what better way to celebrate than doing a episode of the Gospel Attic podcast with us? There you go. That's right. Yeah, we're glad to have you, Randy. So glad to have you. Um, Randy, you you'll be um, you know, feel free to to pipe in anytime you have a, a thought or comment. Jim, what's uh what's going on with you? Jim and I, Jim, let's we sh- we should actually talk about what you and I experienced together last Sunday. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, for our listeners, we memorialized this uh, great outing we had together by taking a picture, and it's now the uh, uh, part of the logo for the Gospel Attic Podcast. So if you're listening, if you clicked on it today and you got this, you probably saw that for the first time. There's a little cartoonish images of Greg and I on the cover, and it's because Greg and I were out together last Sunday at a fun outing and snapped a photograph, and that's now on our logo. You don't want to tell, tell them what the outing was? Well... Sure. So uh, very, very briefly, I uh, uh, was a um, uh, uh, racing, driving, instructing course with professional uh, on a professional race course with professional race drivers. And um, I uh, uh, I made a donation was kind of was and this is part of the the prize that came with making the donation. And and so I got to go race a whole bunch of very fast and exciting cars around a racetrack with a professional driver instructor. For half day, I was going to go alone. The night before, I was texting Greg and I. We were texting each other. And Greg said, "I'll go with you." And I said, "No, don't go. It'll be boring." He said, "No, I'll go." So, Greg, it was I so great it. to have you along. I loved it, and I took a test drive. You know, I went 140 miles in a car around this track, and man, that was crazy. And I wasn't driving, but Jim actually got to drive these cars. What was there? Porsche, Mercedes, yeah. or no, there wasn't the- a Mercedes. No, no Mercedes. We started with the, the, the AMG GT wasn't there, but we started with a uh, C8 Corvette, the new one, which I thought was fast until I drove the uh, some of the other ones, like the Audi R8 with a V10, which seemed fast until I drove the Lamborghini, a Huracan, and that seemed like an, that's an exotic car. That seemed really fast. But to give you an example, this little race course is really twisty, and it has a very short straight, and with the Corvette, the first car I drove, I got up to 85 miles an hour on the straight. I thought, wow, man, this is crooked. Yeah, it's a V8 engine. It's really 85 miles an hour. I thought that was really great. Um, but then I drove the, by the time I got to the Lamborghini going much faster. And then I drove, you think the Lamborghini's fast. Then you drove a Ferrari, a Ferrari 488 GTB. And that is so, that is set up for racing. You lightning fast shifts, great braking, super responsive. And you think that's fast until you drive the ultimate car they had there, which was a Porsche 911 uh, GT3 RS. And that just is an unbelievably empathic car that reads your mind and turns in it. So that car, I got up to 140 miles an hour, 138. So I don't want to exaggerate, 138 miles an hour on the street. That was your favorite one? No, by far. 
so it's a two mile track the track is two miles long he got to do like three laps in these cars and progressively what was cool is like you improved every time you drove a new, another car you kept you went faster you you because it's it, you have to learn that you can't brake and turn at the same time you can't you know there, there's you got to be really really careful uh yeah. going that fast yeah with well, a car i didn't even mention it was a ford mustang i'm probably some of our listeners that may be their favorite car shelby gt 500 uh 741 horsepower but that's a car front engine rear wheel drive where they they told you an in instruction whatever you do do not turn at the same time you are giving the throttle or that rear end is going to come right around so you've got to kind of turn get point the nose straight ahead slam it that v8 engine roars to life and you go you rock it forward but you can't you gotta be super careful with so much power um that otherwise you just spin off the track so and they they warned <laughs> They scare the living daylights out of us talking about how expensive it's going to be if you spin off the track. You're going to pay for that car. So we're all pretty careful. That's right. So, Randy, what do you think about that? You're muted. I was I have a fan going in the background. I actually was sitting here thinking that's unbelievable. I was trying to think about how what that would be like going that fast. Um You've yeah. never done anything like that, Randy? Uh, no, I've never driven like a race car like that. No. Uh -uh. Yeah, what an experience. Most people come and they just want to drive, you know, the Lamborghini. So they pay their money, they do three laps, and they're kind of towing around the tiptoeing around the course. And, and they, by the time you do three laps, you're just getting comfortable and you pull in, it's over. And so by the time I'd done 21 laps with seven cars. And so by, by the end, wow. you really, with a professional driver who's telling you, you know, hit this apex, accelerate here, swing out over here. Now the brake leg, go. And so by the end, we're just passing the other cars and they're pulling My over question, though, is how you could ever have thought that was going to be boring. <laughs> it's exciting for the driver. I thought for poor Greg, just you guys didn't watch. But yeah, I'm glad you got to you do one of those drive-alongs, Greg. That sounded like that was fun. Yeah, and I also enjoyed, I took, you know, I had your camera and I took a bunch of pictures. It was fun taking pictures as the car was was zinging around the i mean it was just fun to watch the cars um it was, it was just a cool experience i i really really enjoyed it so anyway that was fun um we're not sure if we'll keep that in the podcast or not but we'll see we'll see <laughs> but let's dive one. let's dive into the uh the background of first thessalonians um yeah. jim, jim get us started yeah let me get you started and then um we can kind of shift off here a little bit um, uh, um, uh, move around. So, I, so First Thessalonians um, uh, is a book that um, one of the epistles that Paul wrote, um, kind of in the middle of the New Testament. Uh, I actually like to think of this as the start of the T's because you have First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. It helps me remember where it is. But epistles are letters, and so this is one of the letters that Paul wrote to a church in Thessalonica, where he had um, established a church and. There's a short section in the book of Acts that kind of talks about that and how that works. And, and Randy, I think if you had that called up, I thought maybe you, you were thinking maybe you could read that and we could just talk about how this church got started. Sure, I, I would love to. Um, yeah, so in Acts 17, and we have the story here of, of Paul's uh, trip and, and time in Thessalonica. And so in verses, I'm going to read uh, Acts 17 verses 1 through 9, and it's in the NIV. It says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees. 
saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. In just a couple more verses, it says, and as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, and they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Yeah, that's just, that, that's, thanks Randy for reading that. Just a quick comment. I always think about when I read this kind of stuff in the book of Acts, how it helps me, it just helps convince me that scripture is really true. That the Bible we have now is something you can rely on because the level of detail that's in here and the way it's written, it's almost comical. You would just not make this up. You wouldn't write it this way. You wouldn't say they got so mad. They got so mad at these guys, but they couldn't get them. So they grabbed the host. They grabbed the guy whose house they were staying at. And they and he had to, and then the detail, they were so mad at him. They were uh, uh, going to lock him up, but he posted bond. They, they gave him, they uh, had taken money from Jason as security, and then they let him go. Just a little kind of detail that you would write in. But if you were making this up as a story, you would never write in that kind of story, right? You have some kind of dramatic story where they're arrested and hauled before the, uh, some tribunal, but like, oh, they couldn't get him. So they grabbed the guy who owned the house where they were staying and made him post bond, and they're just so angry. It's just that, that kind of detail convinces me that it's true. Um, and then one other just thought on this passage, and I, 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 Randy, I have a slightly different translation than you have. I have the ESV, and I just love this. And I think the New American Standard that I grew up with it reads, it reads the same way. It's in verse uh, six when they they uh, they get there, and these are the critics. These are the the people that are upset with the apostles and uh, with with uh, Paul. They say these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Isn't that awesome? Like he, they, these are not guys that they didn't like them. They weren't saying it as a compliment. They were angry. Like these, they've turned the world upside down. And it was the gospel that was on fire. The gospel just spreading the gospel with driven by the Holy Spirit through these people, turning the world upside down. What a testimony. Um, I know that two of you are in full-time ministry. Isn't that what you want people to say about you? Randy and Greg have turned the world upside down, <laughs> right? This is what we all want as Christians, that God would use us in that kind of powerful way. So I just couldn't let that go without highlighting that verse for for everybody. Awesome. Amen. And one of the one of the interesting things about this is he was only in Thessalon Thessalonia for a very short time. And yeah, yeah. it's our understanding that this is the first letter, you know, Paul wrote like something like two thirds of the New Testament, maybe not quite two thirds, but um, it depends on if you count the number of books or the number of pages or whatever. But let's just say he wrote a large portion of the New Testament that we have in our hands. This is one of the very first things he wrote was yes. his letter to the Thessal Thessalonians. And I believe it was written in about 51 AD. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's what my commentators are saying right around there. So and this is the context of, of uh, uh, how the church got started. And, uh, you know, I think, Randy, you were the one who mentioned, like, how briefly Paul was there. And that, that's, that's striking. Yeah, it is pretty amazing when you think Paul spent a lot of time developing leaders in the towns that he was in. And that was a priority so that when he left, there was leadership to take on and he would develop elders. Well, he didn't have a chance to do anything like that in Thessalonica. And the amazing thing about it is the church seemed to do very well. Um, and so, um, you know, the Holy Spirit seemed to really continue to help mold and develop the church in that community um, in the midst of uh, incredible um, opposition. The church uh, continued to grow. So then Paul leaves, they all leave, and then Paul sends Timothy back. He can't go back, but he sends Timothy back a few months later, says in my commentary. And then Timothy stays there for a while, then meets up with Paul in Corinth and gives Paul an update on how things are going in the church. And he must have said, yeah, things are going great. They're getting established in the Lord and they're growing, but they do have some questions like about the second coming of Christ and people dying. Some of the, you can tell by the way Paul's writing the letter that 
he's writing it to address some of the questions that must have been funneled to him back through Timothy's report, right? Uh, that, you know, uh, just uh, that they're, they're doing well, they're doing, they're doing well in the Lord, but they do have some questions that are troubling them. Paul seems to kind of want to address those things. Before we dive into those themes, let's, let's uh, you know, back in this Acts chapter 17, I, I love, you know, starting in verse two, where it says, you know, how he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He used the Old Testament scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Um, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So that's the gospel. You know, Paul was sharing the gospel and it was changing lives. And, you know, we call this podcast, the gospel addict podcast. And because we think the gospel changes everything. Mm -hmm. it, it's, and it's not just for our salvation, but it's also for, it's one of the keys to our sanctification. In other words, one of the big mistakes that I feel like I see Christians make all the time is they come to faith by grace through the gospel, but then they try to grow spiritually through their works. Right. And they, they kind of move on from the gospel. They kind of fall back into their default mode, which is self-justification and works-based sanctification is what I call it. And so we call this the gospel addict podcast because not only do we need the gospel for our salvation, but we need to, we need the gospel for our sanctification. And so I just, I, I just love, and the apostle Paul, you know, all through the, the scriptures talks about how um, the power of the gospel um, to change lives. So any of you guys want to make any further comments about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you're absolutely right, Greg. And I lived a lot of my Christian life that way, the early Christian life, thinking that, you know, the gospel starts you off. And what we all, the phrase you and I often say, you know, the, we thought the gospel was the ABCs of the Christian life. And now we realize it's the A to Z of the Christian life. We thought it was something that would start you off, but then the, your growth in Christ was all through hard work and effort. Grit your teeth and try harder, make better decisions and grow in Christ and put your mind to it and really grow. And that's uh, sanctification will come through hard work and effort. And if you and I think as an early Christian, that's why I like, you know, like First Thessalonians 4, you go right to 1 Thessalonians 4, and it starts talking about, look, this is how you ought to walk. If we're looking at 4 verse 1, you know, he says, you know, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, that you do so more and more. And in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. He talks about sexual morality, and he talks about um, purity and uh, how to live in holiness, right? Um, in and, and, you know, I would see my teeth into that stuff. I would think this is, this is, that's, that's it. That's what the Christian life's about. You see, we time to get on to brass tacks and get going for the Christian life. We're going to work towards holiness and sanctification right there in First Thessalonians 4. And what you miss at this, that in First Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3, if you read it, the, the word gospel comes up again and again and again, each of those chapters. You know, before we started, Greg, I was trying to circle those and highlight those, but for our listeners who might be flipping along with us, you know, First Thessalonians 1, Verse five talks about our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And then, chapter two talks in verse uh, two, verse two. Uh, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And then, just a few verses later, um, this is actually a great verse uh, memorized a while ago um, in verse four, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. And then verse eight, chapter two, verse eight, you know, uh, being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you become very dear to us. Uh, and wait, wait, there's more. There's two more. In still in chapter two. Verse nine. Uh, yeah, verse 9, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And then uh, down in chapter 3, verse one, verse 2, we send Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, our co-worker in the gospel of Christ. So gospel, 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 get it again. And then it's talking about sanctification. And I think that's what we keep talking about in this podcast. What's the tie-in of the two? 
and the tie-in is that the gospel drives your sanctification. The gospel is your sanctification. The gospel, you never leave it. It's the whole Christian life, right? And that's, we, we talk about all the time, but it's worth repeating. This is what makes us gospel addicts. Yeah, and so one of the things you, you, you have this illustration, and let's assume people are maybe listening for the first time, you know, a lot of times we just think of, you know, the spiritual life is, okay, there's time is the horizontal axis and our holiness is the is the vertical axis. And so the goal of the Christian life is just to keep moving up and to the right. That's right. And a lot of times we, we do that. It, the gospel starts us off, but then, but then it's our hard work and effort. It's, we got to follow the rules. We got to keep, you know, we, we got to keep doing the, doing this. I got to make myself holy. I got to make right. myself holy. That's right. And, and if you do that, you fall into some traps. One is like pride for one thing, spiritual pride, because if you're yeah. successful, then, then you're always looking down on people that aren't successful. Right. And, but quite often it's the opposite that happens. We, we fail and we just, you know, it's just exhausting and you just feel like giving up and you're like, if this is what Christianity is all about, I'm done. But and that's where we, people miss the gospel. Randy, you want to make a comment then, Jim? Well, yeah, I, I was going to say, um, when I graduated from university uh, and I went on staff of this ministry, and one of the things we had to do was to take a time management course. And one of the things you had to do is write what you wanted your life to be about at the end of your life, like if it was on your tombstone. And I remember at the time, um, the great commandment, I wanted to be about the great, to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I, I wrote, um, I relentlessly loved God. And I, and I, I really feel like as, uh, at least in the household I grew up in, that your work ethic was so important. Like one of the things I taught my sons is you won't always be the best at something in the room, but you can be the hardest working. And the scripture says a lot about being hardworking, but when it comes to our salvation and sanctification, it's about rest. It's about trust. It's about allowing God to do the work. And so a number of years later, I was so convicted about what I had written. I, I found that file and opened it up and rewrote it. And it was relentlessly loved by God. Even though we're called to do the great commandment, we love because he first loved us. If we don't know his love, if we're not consumed by his love, and that's the gospel, that when we're consumed by his love for us, uh, it was interesting. I was told once that in the 1800s, when people came to know Jesus, the term they used was they were seized by the power of the great affection. And I, I love that term, that God's affection sees, I picture like just grabbing a hold and not letting go. And so... You know, if, if we haven't been seized, if anyone listening to this hasn't been seized by God's unbelievable love for you, that's where it starts. And um, but it doesn't just start there. It ends there, doesn't it? Like it starts there is. So anyways, I, I just think it's very easy for us to think it's it, our salvation was about Jesus. Now it's up to us. And um, I think we need to remember. That that really it's ultimately all about what Jesus does. Yeah, Greg, it reminds me of the phrase you used once when you were teaching recently that um, every other religion on earth is about do, do, do. And what's Christianity, Greg? How's it different? It's done. D-O-N-E. Religion. And, and it's so easy. It's so easy for Christians to fall into the trap of religion. Yeah. And to start out, with a relationship with Jesus, but then fall back into religion. So um, thank you for sharing that, Randy. That was really awesome. I really, really love that. Uh, I, I love loved what you shared there. Um, but Jim, we talk about, <clears throat> so you got the single line that yeah. we tend to, that's kind of our default setting is to try to, you know, like, you know, anybody that owns like stocks, you always want your stock to keep going up and to the right, you know? increasing in value um so we want to just keep going up and to the right and becoming more and more holy but what's the problem with that jim and what's the 
what's the you know the illustration that you like to that you like to use yeah it's so much easier i know this is audio only for our listeners so we'll try to visualize this for you so try to stay with us but it's help, helpful when you if you see it to kind of the contrast is what kind of brings it out because randy as you were talking about that story that idea of being relentless i'm going to be relentless i'm a new pledge to follow god and i'm going to be relentless in my love for him that's kind of what Greg is talking about when you say, I'm going to, I'm going to work hard climbing up this single line. And you could say in your Christianity, and then if you say, I, I believe in Jesus, he saved me from my sins. So the start of that base of that diagonal line, where the vertical and horizontal axis come together, where the diagonal line starts off, there's a little cross there. And you say, that's the gospel, it saved me. But now, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to climb up that line through my relentless effort. And I, I would have drawn that picture of the christian if you say draw what christianity looks like until i was in my mid-30s i would have drawn it like that somehow some version of that i would have drawn that out and with it, it's if you see it drawn out differently it helps you understand the, how the gospel is so different kind of in the narrative form you put it randy the way when god gripped your heart and he said it's about me loving you and you can contrast that so so bear with me and i'll try to describe this that sing picture that single line illustration where the your, the cross starts you out in the bottom left corner and the, there's a single line up into the right, all driven by your hard work and effort. And the contrast to that is the same scale, the holiness or righteousness on the vertical axis and then time on the horizontal axis. And there's an upward sloping line, but the upward sloping line is not your increasing performance. It is your growing awareness over time of God's holiness. And then from this, so you draw that somewhere along the line. And then from that same starting point, where that diagonal line takes off and goes up into the right, Start there and you draw a, a downward sloping line. That is your growing awareness over time of your own sinfulness or your lost or your lostness, your lack of holiness. So all of us here believers at some point in our lives when we came to know, we said, wait a second, there's a gap between him and me. There's a gap between him and me. I need the cross to fill that gap. And so early in the Christian life, that's what you see when those two lines are close to each other and they're just starting to diverge from each other. You draw a little cross in that little in that crux between that joins the two lines to say that's it that's the gospel that's the gospel that that, that closed the gap between me and him and then as, but as you grow in your christian life you realize how incredible holy incredibly holy wonderful he really is and your diagonal upward line goes even further and you realize how sinful and lost you are even more so and yet that diagonal line goes even further and the cross filling the gap gets bigger and bigger and then you even grow even more in the Christian life. And you say, look, today I, I am more aware of my sin than I was two years ago. I'm more, it, it, spiritual growth is marked by growth of awareness. Growth of growth and awareness. I'm more aware of my sin. I'm more aware of how holy he is. And so therefore the cross looms bigger and bigger because it fills a never widening gap and looms larger and larger. And, I'm, and what the result of that is what I thought was a, a, a okay salvation at the start of my Christian life, only this tiny little gap between me and him, now is an incredible salvation. Uh, Hebrews uh, 3, I think it's Hebrews 3, says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's a great salvation. It's not a little salvation. It's an enormous salvation. And what it does is it makes you grateful. It makes you grateful. So in that single line approach, the whole engine of the Christian life is hard work and effort. And gospel-driven Christianity that we're talking about on the Gospel Addict Podcast is when you say the whole engine of the Christian life is sheer gratitude. And every time we talk about being gospel addicts, that's what I think of. I'm just so great, so grateful to Jesus. Because I'm, you know, today I'm more aware of my sinfulness than I was yesterday. And I'm more aware of his holiness. And the cross is bigger and bigger than it was even yesterday or just last week. So just growing gratefulness. And then one more thing, and I'll, I'll wrap it up. All this takes place in your Christian life. And you're more and more grateful all the time. And then the, and we do the illustration. We have another diagonal line. It kind of starts down below and is a dotted line it starts sloping upward you say well what is that it's another line it's got an upward slope to it and it's dotted what is it's dashed line what does that mean that is your changing life that is your change life because your life does change right randy when god you felt god's relentless love for you say i don't want to sin anymore i want to turn my back on these things i was doing i want to give my heart to him i want to live a life that pleases him we'll get to that in first that's four i want i want to do these things for him not because I'm earning his favor, I've already got it. But it is a total reaction to what he's done for me. It's so different than climbing that single line of spiritual performance, thinking I've got to earn my sanctification. I say, God's given it to me already. And out of sheer gratitude, I just want to serve him and please him. That's why it's dotted, because you're not really, really aware of it. You're not really focused on your Christian life. You're always just focused on the cross, the cross, the cross, the gospel. And so the gospel drives your whole life. 
And that's gospel-driven sanctification. Let's um, bridge that to Thessalonians and let's bridge it to the Apostle Paul. Don't you think the Apostle Paul of all people understood this more than maybe we even understand it? Because of his background, he was like the least likely person to become this great apostle because of his former life. It's pretty amazing, but you you see there's a three times in the book of Acts where Paul's testimony is shared and about his story about uh, on the road to Damascus. And each time you get a little bit more information, but in the final one, it says where God says to Paul, 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 why do you kick against the goads? And what a goad was, was like a six to nine foot long stick that they could reach the lamb and pull it so that it didn't kick you while you were trying to move it. And God was saying to Paul, Paul, I've been I've been moving you. I've been working in you for a long time. Paul grew up not just as a Jew, but he grew up in Tarsus. And um, Tarsus was one of the leading Greek uh, universities outside of Athens in the world. So he would have grown up in a place that understood Greek. It had a Roman garrison in it. So he would have understood the Romans, but he was so, his parents were so committed that they sent him as a, as a young man and as a teenager back to Jerusalem to study under one of the two great teachers, Gamaliel. And so he would have grown up, and the way Gamaliel taught was you would debate with him every day. So Paul grew up learning to debate, but he grew up among the top and the elite. Uh, 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 he was going to be one of the key lawyers in the country, uh, debating law and and. and um, yeah, I mean, he was set up. He, he would have gone to the Harvard of, of, um, of Jerusalem. And so he grew up as a strict Jew, understanding it all, but also understanding other cultures. So for Paul to finally give up fighting and saying, no, I surrender to Jesus, that would have been incredible. Um, and that's why God said, I, you're kicking against the goat. I've been trying to move you this direction. Quit fighting me. Um, so I, I don't know if that's what you're hoping to get, Greg, but yeah. Well, that and a lot that that was excellent. But also along with the idea that he was he was persecuting Christians. He was he wanted to put the death Christians. I mean, he was he he, he was opposed to Jesus like he wanted to stamp out um, this movement and uh, and then God intervened. And so my point is that he is like the least likely person um, to, or, or I should say, he, he understood this whole idea of, of gospel-driven sanctification. He understood that, uh, you know, what Jesus had done for him. And it comes out in his letters, like you mentioned, uh, Jim, how many times he mentions the word gospel. And uh, so let's, that was great. Let's, uh, let's dive into First Thessalonians. What are some of the themes that you guys see here? There's, there's obviously the theme, the theme of uh, the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. I heard uh, that it's, in, you can find it in every chapter of the book of First Thessalonians. Almost every chapter ends with a reference to the return of Christ. So what do you guys know about the issue that was going on that made him mention that so, so many times? Yeah, it's good to look back and think about, like, this is a time when people just didn't have any kind of systematic theology of Christianity or didn't understand all these kind of things that, you know, we've had 2,000 years to kind of debate these issues and thrash them out and think about all the different, uh, all the different angles. But I think, and I'm trying to flip to it now, there are some people who were, who had died and um, people were thinking, wait a second, I heard Jesus is coming back and now I'm worried that so-and-so that I know who's died might miss it, might miss out on the whole thing. And so Paul's got to give them assurance and said, well, don't worry that they're going to participate in as well. And they're not going to miss a thing. The early church also on the opposite side of that was also dropping out of society, waiting for the imminent return of Jesus any moment. And so um, 
and we know that's still to come, but, um, you know, Paul was warning, one, you're not going to miss it, but two, uh, don't drop out of everything. You know, you still need to, to be involved. Well, that's right. And those, those kind of themes are both together in chapter four, because um, the part I was thinking about is chapter four, verse 13, where he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope which is, you know, um, a theme unto itself. All the, if you're the irreligious of the world, the people who serve this, the secular world that have no hope about the afterlife or seeing loved ones again. But, but he says, we don't want you to be like that. We don't want you to grieve. And he says, since Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Uh, and I'm in chapter four, verse 15. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, Randy, I, want to, I just want to read that, and I want to come back, though, to your theme as well, because it's the other thing about people just like sitting around and say, well, God, in that case, I'll just sit around and wait. That's kind of right before that. They were idle and not working. Um, and so uh, I want, and I, I want to really want to spend some time on that theme as well. But uh, thanks for indulging me. I, do, I wanted to read these verses out loud because they are so encouraging. And we, we could, there's so many different views on the end times. There's views on uh, the tribulation and rapture and all those types of things. When I was a young Christian, I spent, used to spend a lot of time thinking about those things and wondering about it. And and I realized it wasn't I wasn't I was curious about those things, trying to figure them out, and wasn't really. Um, doing anything for my spiritual life and leading me closer to God or um, doing anything for my faith. And so, uh, and I, I just kind of like the way he puts it here. He's not trying to explain exactly everything about it, how it's all going to work step by step. He's not trying to give you a, that kind of roadmap. He's just trying to say, look, you don't have to worry about that. And uh, um, you, first of all, you don't have to worry that people who have died are going to miss it. Um, but the key here is I think in the, uh, verse 17 in chapter 4, when he says, uh, talks about, you know, meeting the, uh, meeting the people who have uh, risen up in Christ, meeting them in the clouds, in the air. The last part of that verse says, and so we will always be with the Lord. And the key there is, no matter what your view of the end time is, no matter what happens with the tribulation and rapture, all that stuff, we will be with the Lord. And then he says, therefore, encourage one another with those words. And I think it's all meant to be an encouragement. It's just like this is supposed to encourage you in your faith and not lead to some kind of controversies and debates. This theme is this is a big this is a big theme, and I just uh, real quickly want to uh, call attention to it in chapter one, verse ten. Um, in the context, he says, "They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven." whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So there's the first mention of the second coming. And then if you go to the end of chapter two, you see, he says, for what is our hope, our joy, or our crown in which we were glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. But he talks about when he comes, when Jesus comes back. And then in chapter three, he says in verse 13, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our of, of God and our Father when the Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones. So this this theme of the second coming is uh is definitely prevalent. Um Randy, what was the comment you wanted to make? Well, thank you. I, I was just gonna say, um, and Jim, you brought this up, but one of the other major things here is the idea of hope. Yes. And I think that's linked with a couple of things here, but one with the, with the second coming, that that's our blessed hope, as scripture says. And so um, when we have the gospel, we always have hope uh, as followers of Christ. We always have hope. And I love the fact that uh, if, if we die, we get to be with the Lord. Mm -hmm. If we're persecuted, we get rewards from God. If we don't and we stay here, we get to, to be in the community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
we have no, we win in every scenario. And That's so right. we always have hope. And um, he talks a lot about hope. Uh, again, I think our hope is in Christ and his return, but this church was born in persecution. And, um, you know, a lot of times in the West, we don't think about persecution as much right now. And I, I don't know where the statistic came from, but I was told that more people have been martyred in the last 100 years uh, than the prior 1900 years before. Wow. Is that right? And um, for Christ. Yeah. In, in countries, all it was some of the countries maybe where there are listeners and people listening to this. And so Paul's writing to a, a church that he had to flee because of persecution. Wow. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are dealing with persecution today. And I guess I was thinking in Paul's thing about hope, that we have hope. And so uh, I just want to encourage folks, no matter where you're at in your life, that if we focus on Christ, there is always hope. The gospel addict, it, it's because we, we do have hope in the gospel. Amen. That's a good, that's a good word. Yeah. Someone might be listening that uh, is, is enduring persecution. And this is a great, this is a great book of the Bible to meditate on. Um, if you are going through um, hard times because uh, Jesus, Jesus is our hope. You know, just to kind of emphasize that, that the, in chapter one, he talks about, Paul talks about, Hope in verse three, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's actually faith, hope, and love in chapter one. And then in chapter five, he returns to that. And this is chapter five, verse eight. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for helmet, the hope of salvation. So he starts by talking about faith, hope, and love, and he returns to it in chapter five, faith, hope, and love. And in that verse we just read in the middle, he talks about the people who are who don't have Christ, who have no hope. What a contrast that is. Mm. So what a when we talk about the word hope in the English language, we it it is it's different in the, when the Bible speaks of hope, it's different than the way we use it. Uh, typically in English uh, language, like we say things like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Um, we, we use it in like uncertain terms, but when the Bible speaks of hope, it's a certainty. It's, 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 these are certain things that are going to happen. And so um, we're not, you know, Jesus is going to come back. That's a, that's a, that's a certainty. That's a promise that he gave. So I think it's just important that for our English listeners to just distinguish, because we use the word hope, we throw it around a lot, like, yeah. gee, I hope this doesn't happen, or I hope this. But um, whenever you read the word hope in the Bible, know that it means a certainty that's going to take place. Wow. Well, yeah, that's radically different, Greg. Thanks for pointing that out. What What else is standing out to you guys from these from this uh, book? Well, I want to go back to this whole deal that um, Randy talked about in chapter four um, uh, about works. I've always loved this verse, chapter 11, and I don't want to take out of context. We'll go back and talk about the context in a second. But he says, you aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And um, it comes up again, actually, in Second Thessalonians, in a longer passage, which we can get to in a minute, about the the whole the whole point that you you cannot be idle. You're supposed to work hard in the Christian life. And this comes up in the when he's kind of so he talks about the, the gospel uh, in the first couple of chapters, and he talks about uh, the second coming of Christ and our, our hope, the things we talked about, and now the in chapter four talking about kind of practicalities of Christian living, sanctification, and the first one is abstaining from sexual morality. In chapter four, um, verse four, uh, and then in verse nine, he kind of turns a corner in a new paragraph and says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So there's love, right? 
Remember, you know, we're talking about faith, hope, and love. There's love. Then in verse 10, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brother, to do this, do this more and more, which is what? This is love the brothers. And then verse 11, the verse I read before, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And so one of the points of this is that the way you're loving people, the way you're loving people is not to be a burden on others, is to work. It's just, just to work and, and, to, and to produce and work hard. And that is how you're going to show love for each other, right? So, um, so Greg, I think when I, when I end up uh, talking about this in a couple of weeks at our Bible study, I want to probably focus on this theme of work and the Christian views of work and actually dug up some notes. In 2008, I spoke with you in your college ministry and a whole little talk I, I gave on the, the whole concept of work and the Christian views of work. Um, because it's um, fascinating to me. And, and, and maybe we can linger on this topic for a minute because both of you are in full-time Christian ministry and I'm, I'm just a lay person. I have a full-time job. Um, and, uh, I, um, and, and I, th I think about this whole idea of the Christian view of work and a couple different Christian views of work. And one is that work is, work is completely worthless. Work is worthless. Whatever you're doing out there in those tall buildings downtown, it is just whatever it is, it's worthless. The only thing that's going to matter is the word of God and people. That's, that's the only thing that matters. Everything else you're doing, whatever you're doing in your industry, whatever, whatever it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. And the only thing that matters is the word of God and people. So the only thing that really matters is full-time Christian work. So in that view, you guys are the worthwhile ones. And what I do for a living is, is, is worthless, right? There's another Christian view, the kind of middle ground that says, your work is fine. It's like tolerable. As long as what you're doing at work is witnessing the people at the office, so you're, you have a job as an evangelistic outreach, see, so you can leave a Bible on your desk or, you know, tract or something and share the gospel. So the work is, a, I guess, it's not, it's not evil. We'll tolerate it in Christian circles, but it's not, it's not really good. It's just, it's, it's tolerable as long as you're using it uh, for the gospel. Oh, oh, and make money so that you can give it to people who are in Christian ministry and full-time Christian work, right? So it's it's useful for those two things, right? But it's kind of, the, the work itself is still, still kind of worthless in that view. It's just instrumental to something else, giving and witnessing. And then that, the third view is that the work itself is actually worthwhile. The work itself is actually doing something that God wants to have, ha to have happen. And I, I, when I talked about this in 2008 with your ministry, Greg, I kind of dwelled on that and went down that, that rabbit hole and talked about it. And I'll probably do that again this time because it's a different, it's a different Christian view of work. It comes from a lot of Luther's view of work, um, kind of the reform, uh, Reformation view of work and uh, uh, his view of the, because uh, he was dealing at a time when there was like the idea that the priests were doing the, the, the worthwhile work and no one else was. And the whole idea of the Protestant view of the priesthood of all believers, Luther went on for, you know, really, really uh, developed this whole idea that, um, how's the story go? He would say, uh, if you say, I want God to love me by producing milk and giving milk, you said, well, how is God going to do that for you? There's a milkmaid out there somewhere milking a cow that's going to produce that for you. So you say, oh, God, give me some milk. They say, that's, that's how it's happening. Someone's working to get you that milk. You say, if only God would give me bread. How is God going to give you bread? Well, there's a farmer out there plowing the fields, harvesting the wheat. Someone is working to give you that. And his point is kind of like this, 1 Thessalonians 4. How you are showing love to each other is the interconnectedness of the world through work and serving each other also this work is making a contribution and is the hand of god to other people and is the way you're showing the brotherly love so it's a different and, and, and there's, there's probably 10 different view, other views of work i just narrowed it down to those three that i'm familiar with that i think about um but it's a different conceptualization of work that says the actual the substance itself of what you're doing is worthwhile now you could add you have to qualify that you say well my, my job is if your job is dealing drugs Okay, then that, okay, that's not worthwhile, right? And that's, it's illegal and you should stop that because that's not, it's not worthwhile. And it's not doing things. And there, and there are probably gradations of what is worthwhile in this world. If you're, you know, doing some uh, different things that are more worthwhile than others, right? But uh, Luther's view is that all work, as long as it's not illegal, not really detrimental, all work is from, you know, digging ditches and sweeping floors to other high-minded work in the university. It's all God, God's work, and it's all, um, it's, it's intrinsically valuable, not just instrumental to something else. Well, I so, think so. that's, I think that's true. I think that's biblical because even before man fell, God gave Adam a job. 
Oh, right. Cultivate the garden. Yeah. And take care of the animals. Name the animals. He had a job. And so work is not something. I think sometimes we have this feeling, Christians especially have this idea that, well, work is something that came after the fall and and it's all sweat and you know we never find full satisfaction in it and that kind of thing i liked i liked your three ideas i did i did have the question i wonder if there's more than three probably are views views of work but randy do you have any thoughts on on what well, uh colossians 323 whatever you do work at it with all your heart is working for the lord not for men and i'm just thinking we're, we're commanded here whatever you do to work at it with all your heart. And I think, yeah, work is holy. And um, if you want a great book, there's a, there's a book by a friend of mine named John Beckett, and the book is called Loving Monday. And the whole idea is that your job and your profession and your work that most people give most of their time to, you don't do a job so you can do your ministry. Our life is our ministry. Yeah. And so, um, you know, if that was a case, then most of us would be wasting most of our day. But his whole concept was, you know, if you approach your job as this is a ministry to the Lord, you get up loving Monday. I get to go up to work today and serve Christ at work. Right. And, um, you know, I, I by my doing this job, I provide jobs for other people. And by my doing this job, I can honor Jesus wherever I'm at. And so, yeah, it's a great book if you ever want to, uh, on, on this very topic that we're talking about right now. Say the uh, title and the author again for our listeners. The author, it's on InterVarsity Press. It's John Beckett. And the name of the book is called Loving Monday. Loving Monday. Yeah, because most people, and most people, the, the general idea is people don't like Mondays, right? Because they got to go back to work. Right. Um, that's why, like, well, let me just say, Jim, one of the reasons I, I loved having you come and speak to our group, and one of the reasons I, I, I chose to have you come so many times is because you represent what most of them are going to do. Most of them, they're not all, you know, we'd have like 100, 150 students at the meetings, and I knew that most of them are going to, they're going to be in the working world. They're going to be architects. They're going to be businessmen and women and nurses and so for you know i could easily just speak to them from a from a, a uh speak to them every week you know because it's my job or, or my ministry but i loved having guys like you come in because to for them to see somebody who um wants to make a difference in their job you know doing their job and and just that perspective i think is is so good because i think we there is sort of this feeling that like you're um, I hate it when you, we fall into this trap of like there's a class Christians and then there's okay. B class Christians. Right, and right. if you're an A class Christian, you know, you're a missionary, you're a pastor, you're a full time Christian worker. But if you're a, an architect and you're a Christian, you're kind of like in the B class, like, no, 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 I don't think that's 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 it at all. Yeah. Um, so I I just loved uh you know, that's one of one of the reasons I was so excited to have you come and share and speak. And I think this is an important topic. Um, yeah, now, let's get back to the context of the Thessalonians. Why were they not working? Was it because they were sitting around thinking that Jesus was coming back? That's the impression that I seem to get. Is that what you guys are getting? Randy, it sounded like you were thinking the same thing, because it's kind of juxtaposed with the talk of the end times, right? Or Randy, you're on mute. Sorry, I keep doing that. I'm sorry. I do know, I, I don't know about here necessarily, Greg, but I do know in the early church, I remember the concept that um, as they thought about the second coming, you know, they, they really anticipated it to be any day. And so, um, yeah, there were stories of people quitting their jobs. And obviously, they've asked Paul about this topic because some of them must be struggling with this. Like, what's our proper response to do be? And I think for us, it's we're prepared for the imminent return of Jesus. It's going to happen. 
but none of us know when. And so we live our lives with that hope. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that, I think the two things we talked about, one was uh, that you don't miss out on this. Uh, um, and two, you don't put your life on hold and your children have no food because you quit your jobs and you're standing on a mountaintop looking at the sky, that that's also not the proper response. You know, I think that's true. And I think because it's juxtaposed this whole idea of the second coming, I think that's a real likely cause. Um, one of the other commentaries I read just talked about people just living off the largesse of generous Christians in their community. And you think about, you know, this is Thessalonica, okay? It's not what happened in Jerusalem in the book of uh, early, uh, in, um, in the book of Acts, when people kind of had more communal living. There's people selling their, selling their property and everyone living together. But you could see that if that Christian community is developing that way, eventually there's some people that, you know, they become freeloaders. They say, this is great. <laughs> this is great. Someone else sell their stuff and I get to eat for free. And they're just, you know, human nature being what it is, people, you know, they, they, there's a free rider tendency where people try to say, I can slack. I don't have to do this. You guys do this. This is wonderful. Keep, keep it coming. And, um, and, and Paul, it's not entirely clear exactly what drove them to be idle, but the, the message is clear. You're not supposed to be that way. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. And then we could all maybe look at the other passage in second Thessalonians as well, because it's, it's, um, I think that's where he says, if, a, if a, a person does not work, neither should they eat. I mean, you should, you, you got to be pulling your own weight. And, um, you know, and there's, I think, in, in Christian history, a long tradition of that kind of hard work and work ethic uh, that comes out of that, because, you know, we're not supposed to be free, freeloaders, free riders, uh, slackers um, in the Christian life. It's a, um, not what God intended. It's not our witness. What do you think is the current view among Christians about work? Randy, what do you think of the three views that Jim mentioned? What do you think the prevailing one is? Well, I think there's a, I think sometimes there's a difference that we intellectually would say we agree with number three, that it's holy, that we know it's we're called to do that for the Lord, but we live like we believe, number one, that uh, that I just get through my job. I don't want to, so I can go do other things I want to do, like ministry. Like, So I, I think there may be a disconnect there almost for some of us that um, yeah, I may intellectually agree with that, but I don't live that necessarily. So, you know, there can be, since you just made you use the word disconnect and it jogs something in my memory. And it, I have listened to you talking about books. Uh, I, 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 there's one book I have from uh, Tim Keller, Every Good Endeavor. It's also about the Christian view of work. And it's, uh, he has some uh, sermons. I think the book is taken from the sermons on First Thessalonians as well. Um, but, um, that, that notion of like, uh, the, the, the first view, you think in Christian circles, you could be this way. This is what Luther is talking about with the, the priest who was elevated and they were looking down their nose at people in secular professions. Right. And you can see in Christian circles today, maybe that's a problem. People say this Christian work is worthwhile, but your work is not worthwhile, but there can be a problem among people that are completely secular. Somebody says, I am a doctor, but I'm a doctor purely for the money. I really don't care about patients. I don't care about the subject I'm doing. I'm doing it in extrinsically. I'm doing instrumentally, get something else out of it. I want a fancy car and I want a good living. And like, and, or I want status or I want, or I want self-definition. If I am a, a doctor, lawyer, some kind of profession, a successful, it's not just those professions, a successful actor, successful author, then, then people will recognize me. My life will feel worthwhile. I'll be vindicated. You get this self-definition and purpose out of it. And, and then you're turning those things into idols and becoming slaves to those things. This is completely outside of the Christian experience of the Christian world, right? This is just a secular problem. If you say it's an unhealthy view of work, but it plagues Christians and non-Christians alike. And in, in the point, I think that at one point Keller brings out when he talks about this is, you know, in Christ, if you say, look, my identity is secure in him. I, he's given me everything. I love Greg, back to you. It's not due, it's done. It's all done. Therefore, if I'm a doctor, I don't need to, I don't need this profession to 
to find myself, to give me status, to make my life worthwhile. God gave me all those things already through Christ. Therefore, I can practice medicine and just serve people. And if I'm a lawyer or a banker or dig ditches for a living, you know, on a construction worker, and I could say, this is not defining me and who I am. I'm not, not just making a paycheck to work for the weekends. I can do this for the Lord because he's already blessed me with it in, the, in the heavenly places. He's already, my standing in him is complete, is complete and I can rest in that completely. And therefore, I can actually enjoy my job. And back to that verse you said in class, I can do it for the Lord, not for men, because I'm not, I don't need it to feel good about myself or just to get the paycheck. I can just do it because I'm serving him, whatever it is. Whatever it is. Anyway, those, those some thoughts from uh, uh, she, I should give our listeners the name of the Keller sermons they could they could get it because he has a good really good sermon on First Thessalonians four. That's good. Well, um, I feel like we probably need to kind of wrap this up for for now at least. Are there any other themes worth mentioning? I think that's I think that's good enough for now, Greg. We should just wrap up. Yeah. Did you say anything else you thought in first and second or second Thessalonians you want to mention? No, I don't think so. I think that's what I was thinking. Is um, we we hit all the ones that I had thought thought about beforehand. So yeah. Well, let's let's kind of close with some. Uh, you know, the, you know, the economy of words uh, that Paul, the way he writes is just amazing. I mean, if you look at First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, um, you know, 16 to 18 or 19, he says, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything and hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. It's just kind of interesting. You can just hear him like just pouring out his heart for the Thessalonians. Just kind of, he wants to give them like little golden nuggets, like, you know, that pray continually. Man, that's a challenging verse. That's challenged me my whole Christian life. What does that look like? How do you experience that? I want to know what that's, what that's about. Um, give thanks in all circumstances. Boy, that's a tough one too, because I can give thanks in a lot of circumstances, but there's some circumstances that are really, really hard to give thanks for. Be joyful always. Um, I mean, just so many, so much powerful. Um, and these are almost like commands, but it's all in light of the gospel, all in light of what Jesus has done for them. You know, again, he's pointing them to the cross and he's saying, because of the cross, you can be joyful always. Because of Jesus, you can pray continually. Because of Jesus, you can give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He also talks about God's will. That was one thing that we didn't mention and how um, and how important the area of sexuality is when it comes to God's will, sexual oh, purity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And boy, that's a challenging one in today's culture, isn't it? The huge, and we we you're right. We didn't really dwell on it, um, but for um, you know, for two thousand years, a hallmark of Christians everywhere, a distinguishing feature of Christians everywhere, has been sexual purity. And um, it's funny. I just, I just, I just thinking that every generation thinks they just they're discovering sex for the first time, and and the older generation doesn't know about it. But it's it's, it's been around forever, right? <laughs> Right. And, and like, um, but as you know, Christians for 2000 years, it, it, again, this comes from one of Keller's sermons, but he's, he talks about how there's some, uh, some writing in some uh, secular uh, historian at the time, maybe it was Roman historian that said, these Christians, they share their money with everyone and they share their bed with no one. And they were upset because they said, we Romans are exact opposite. <laughs> We don't share money with anybody. We share a bed with everybody. And these Christians were distinctive. They were known for this. They're generous with their money and absolutely devoted to sexual purity. It's such a hallmark. You're right, Greg. We didn't really draw that. Um, 
But look, if you want to, if, to wrap up, Greg, could you just read, you started reading and I'm so excited for these verses. Could you just read 23 and 24? Maybe that's a good way to kind of wrap up. Oh man, I just, uh, let me find it. Randy, do you have it? Chapter five, verse 23 and 24? Um, not right in front of I got me. it, I got it, I got it. Uh, may the God, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So just to wrap up on this, kind of going back to where we started, where the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life, not just the ABC of the Christian life, not, not gospel starting you off and then you sanctify yourself. This is so great and so clear. And he's saying the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. He's the one sanctifying you. He will, and then in verse 24, God is faithful. He will surely do it. He's the one sanctifying us. Praise the Lord through the gospel. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.